Trust me, I'm like a smart person. I think there is a lot of concern out there in the community. They want to have a product that is pure. Are you saying it's food fraud? Yeah, absolutely. These officials want to know how a locally made baby milk powder became contaminated with a potentially deadly chemical. According to the state media... From the conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, where we ask academics to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. I'm Sananda Cray, and today we're talking about food. The industry-wide secret butchers don't want you to know about. Major suppliers have been caught using a special product known as meat glue to stick together scraps of meat to sell as prime cuts. Demand for organically grown food is at an all-time high as farmers are growing to meet the demand. What have you eaten today? And how much do you know about where it was produced, how it was produced, what was added in the process, and how it made its way to your plate? Even as most of us grow increasingly removed from actual food production, many consumers still take food fraud and perceptions of food purity really seriously. From milk contamination scandals to the skyrocketing global interest in organic foods, it's clear that many of us still care quite deeply about the foods we eat. And that's affecting food labelling and consumer behaviour. One person who's studied that terrain quite closely is Dr Andrew Ventimiglia, a research fellow at the University of Queensland. In his research, he looks at food fraud and how it relates to science, culture, trademark law and food regulation. He sat down with Justin Bergman, the conversation's deputy politics and society editor, to talk about the weird history of food adulteration and certification. Everything from 19th century dairy farmers adding sheep's brains to skim milk to make it look frothier to centuries-old oil, wine and honey adulteration scandals. Dr Ventimiglia said forms of food fraud laws have been recorded as early as the 13th century, but the issue really came into focus in the 1800s. The moment when food adulteration really became a particular kind of crisis or recognised really broadly as an issue that had to be regulated was probably around... Um, the early 19th century, and this was across countries. So uh, the UK was probably the primary place where early regulations were developed, but the United States was also a hotbed and Australia followed soon after. So one of the most significant moments in which food adulteration was recognized as a problem, both a problem in terms of market deception, but also one in terms of public health, was a German chemist, uh, Frederick Ackham, who wrote a book, a treatise, on the adulteration of food and what he called the adulteration of food and culinary poisons and methods of detecting them. And this really brought food fraud into focus as a particular issue that had to be regulated. Um, and the list of goods that were problem goods at the time are incredibly similar to the problem goods today. For instance, coffee, milk, olive oil, and then of course wine and liquor were the primary ingredients that, were, that drew a lot of concern. And those are a lot of the same ones that are listed by the U.S. Pharmacopoeia Convention's food fraud database, where olive oil and milk are number one and two on the list. And honey, which Australians are, are familiar with, honey is third. A bottle of milk, thanks. Low fat, no fat, full cream, high calcium, high protein soy, light skim, omega-3, high calcium with vitamin D and folate or extra dollop. Uh, uh, I just want milk to taste like real milk. You've done a little bit of research into milk. So back back in the 19th century, what types of milk frauds um, were we seeing? 
Yeah, I think the the issues around the adulteration of milk really bring into focus how much early food regulation was concerned with public health and safety. Adulterated milk was one of the first issues that got national attention. And this was roughly in the mid-1800s to late-1800s, both particularly in the UK and the US. And the earliest form of adulterated milk that was really concerning to regulators was actually simply skim milk. So what we would recognize as skim milk, letting the milk set, skimming the cream off the top, and then adding water. State law. Chapter 502 says fresh milk minus cream equals imitation milk because removing the cream also removes too much vitamin A. So this is something that now has its own market, but at the time, of course, was seen as a real uh, a real problem, a way that dairy producers and milk producers were swindling consumers. And consumers even uh, asked that cows be brought to their stoops to ensure that the cow, that the milk that they were getting had not been had been adulterated. So skim milk was a problem, but even more important was that skim milk, as we know, can look a little bit thin. Sometimes it can have a bluish tint to it. So increasingly, producers who are making skim milk were adding flour or starch, sometimes carrots for sweetness. But they were also adding things that did pose a public health risk. So for instance, chalk was added to increase the whiteness of milk, as well as uh, brains, often sheep or calf brains, to froth the milk to give it the kind of protein. And those posed really legitimate health risks that were recognized by early analytic chemists and that really initiated some early food regulations. And so how did society respond with with food standards back in the day? Um, And why was it so vital, especially from a health perspective? First, what's apparent is that some of these adulterations clearly were health risks. I think milk is a good example. But ground zero in the U.S. was uh, the meatpacking industry meat adulteration or the manipulation of meat byproducts was, was a real issue and could pose significant health risks to the population. But there was also uh, this additional kind of sociocultural layer, which was that as industrial food production developed and different forms of manufacturing, chemistry became really centrally featured in food manufacturing. And the chemical production of preservatives or other additives were not necessarily harmful, but people didn't exactly know what the effects of these different preservatives were. So there's this idea that something was masquerading as something else. And that simple element of deception could be really threatening. So I actually find it no surprise that some of the main advocates for early food standards were Christian social reformers. And this idea of maintaining food purity was had this kind of religious component to it. Um, that our foodways should be sanctified, they should be pure, and that adulterations or kind of deceptions in the food industry had this underlying moral threat to it, not just a public health threat. And Australia finally harmonized all of these different food acts in the 1980s, but the framework for all of this was set really in the early 20th century with these pure food and drug laws. And these practices were both done to regulate industry players to establish particular standards that would regulate these players. But it really was also done to regain consumer trust that was seen to be really in in threat at this time. And let's talk a little bit about how food standards have changed since the 19th century going into the 20th century. Um, How did they become more market-driven? It may not be that they've become more market-driven. It's that over time, as food standards have been asked to do all kinds of work, including ensuring public safety, 
managing deception, managing all kinds of different elements of the food chain, including where your thing com- where the, your product comes from, how it's marketed. As as food regulations have become increasingly complex, I think the main thing that's happened is that it's exposed how there are really different logics at play across food regulatory regimes. In other words, food regulatory law is grounded in two actually sometimes opposing logics. One is that it's supposed to protect public health and safety, but the other is that it's supposed to protect against deceptive practice and consumer fraud done for economic gain. Back in the early 20th century, these things overlapped automatically. And one other thing about contemporary standards is that over time, I think it's become more apparent that standards, no matter how well-defined, are inevitably going to privilege some producers over others so that they're not separate from the market institutions they're meant to regulate. In fact, they often become totally imbricated in or related to the market forms they're, they're trying to regulate. So I think the early pure food and drug laws had a real naive approach, which was that they could develop a kind of platonic ideal, a definition of a particular food that then would hold markets and hold producers accountable, when in fact every standard ends up becoming very highly contentious and different industry players will fight over what those standards mean. And I think that's become increasingly apparent over time as particular categories of foods become really important um, for different producers. So can you give us an example of this, um, of standards being developed, not health-related, but um, totally based on, on market concerns? Yeah, absolutely. There are, there are a number of them, all of which are particularly interesting. But I've been doing recent research on the emergence of wine standards, particularly in the United States. And in the early 20th century, uh, just prior to prohibition, there were lots of debates about what the standard should be for wine. So because of the pure food and drug law, they established a standard, which was essentially what we'd think of as wine, right? The normal alcoholic fermentation of the juice of sound ripe grapes without addition or subtraction. Now, the thing is, some wine producers, particularly in Ohio and Missouri, practiced the addition of water and sugar to their grapes. In other words, it probably tasted a lot like fruit, fermented fruit juice. But their argument was that that was fundamentally wine and should be classified as wine as, because the natural qualities of the land and the climate and the American varieties they used produced a really intense but sour grape that required chemical manipulation to bring those natural flavors out. Missouri wine has a very deep history. It all started in the mid-1800s. German immigrants in particular, some of the earliest ones were actually the, the missionaries. They gravitated to the Missouri River. And Herman was, was where it originally all started. So Ohio and Missouri wines, they said, natural Ohio and Missouri wines, true Ohio and Missouri wines, were wines that were simultaneously what we would think of as adulterated. They were ones that were manipulated as such to bring out their true qualities. And this argument actually made sense to the regulators. And for a short period of time, regulators defined Ohio and Missouri wine as wine that could be ameliorated in this way. And this really demonstrates how standards and how ideas about the natural that are kind of encoded in standards are always shaped. They can't be separated from economic interests. For instance, the food regulators really did take seriously what should be considered wine and how it should be considered a natural product. But they also didn't want to destroy the Midwestern wine industries 
that were really at the time in threat because California wine industries were growing. So the wine regulators based their standards on science. They took it very seriously. But it was also a, a market tool, and it intervened in the market. And there is no level of scientific objectivity that would have changed that dimension of food regulation. Honey isn't always honey. That's the shocking finding. Almost half the samples were not 100% pure honey, yet the labels state otherwise. Alarmingly, we don't know all the ingredients. You know, these continue to be issues that come up today, you know, especially with recent scandals over fake honey um, and other adulterated foods. So when something is advertised as 100% pure or all natural or all organic, how much trust can we have in this kind of promise today? Yeah, I, I think we are witnessing something of a decrease in consumer trust, both in the enforcement of standards and simply in consumers not knowing what portion of the label is an actual government-mandated standard and what parts are market-speak, what parts are trademarks, what parts are reliable information. Well, a new study is shedding light on a grocery store debate, natural or organic. Most of us think natural and organic mean the same thing. Consumer Reports found that 73% of us buy foods labeled natural, even though there are no real standards for what that actually means. The report also found that shoppers are looking for stronger federal guidelines. And this decrease in consumer trust, I think, speaks to the fluid relationship between market regulations and branding or other forms of communication that are placed on the label itself. So one of the challenges of regulatory standards is not simply developing sound, scientifically based and enforceable standards that make sense. It's also that standards are not particularly visible. In other words, they can really blend in or be concealed uh, or become less visible next to market language, trademarks, and all these other kind of dimensions of the label or packaging or advertising. So one of the challenges that regulatory bodies have is they actually have to kind of embrace their market position. In other words, some of the best, some of the most successful regulations are ones that have figured out how to also be visible to the consumer and convey information concisely to the consumer. Um, so I think here, for instance, of you know, the USDA grading system in the United States for grading meat products is usually very visible. It's one of the few things on cellophane-covered meat packages. It's something that conveys information quickly and concisely, basically in the same way that an effective trademark does. And I think that's an interesting dimension of standards that shouldn't be concealed from the public. Reg regulatory bodies would only be better served if they recognized the market value and the market role that these regulations have. And, and we are still seeing some market manipulation uh, of food standards today as well, right? That's absolutely right. There are pretty much examples nearly every day of battles between industry players, consumer groups, and government bodies over particular standards. Um, for instance, just recently, there's been some attention over the labeling of yogurt. Silk, man, what you got? Yogurt? No, it's dairy-free silk. In the United States, where the dairy industry is pretty aggressively lobbying the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, to modify their standards for yogurt such that the requirement that they have 3.25% milk fat 
no longer holds. And this is, of course, because yogurt is an industry that's really been innovating, it's constantly changing, and the incorporation of things like coconut milk or soy are increasingly common. And industry players really want to make sure that they can still call the thing that they're producing yogurt. Is food adulteration still dangerous from a health perspective today? Um, and are our laws strong enough? Or could food safety adulteration be an increasing threat in the future? So undoubtedly, food adulteration today can still be very dangerous. Uh, but I think one of the things that we can do going forward is to disentangle issues about the regulation of foods based on health risk and those that are more about consumer deception or consumer fraud where no health risk is necessarily there, but it's simply about whether or not particular foods meet the standards established by regulatory bodies. So if it's the latter, if it's simply about consumer deception, then it looks a lot like trademark. And the question would be, what do consumers value? Are particular consumers fine with adulterated honey if it's at a lower price point, as long as there's no health risk? And so regulators might be more comfortable or, or might have to find themselves being more comfortable with some non-zero level of risk in terms of fraud, as long as they can recognize that public health concerns aren't at play, and also that they can focus on particular goods that they might be able to certify more fully or ensure the quality of in different ways. And now from food fraud to food poisoning. Here's the conversations intern, Jordan Fermanis, talking to Dr. Shauna Murray from UTS. An increase in naturally occurring toxins from microalgae is not something we usually associate with climate change. But that is exactly what has been happening in the Pacific Island region for decades. Ciguatera fish poisoning is a tropical disease that because of climactic events like coral bleaching, cyclones and warming waters, has made its way from the Pacific Islands to the New South Wales coast. I spoke with Shauna Murray, an associate professor at the University of Technology Sydney, who works in the climate change cluster at UTS. We spoke about where the ciguatera poison comes from and how it managed to work its way down to Australia. It's a type of foodborne poisoning that comes through a naturally occurring toxin that's produced by a marine microalgae. And this microalgae grows on surfaces, especially on the surface of large macroalgae, uh, like kelps, things like that, that we know, and also on the surfaces of dead corals. In Australia, it's been known for about 20 years. We've had likely more than three or 4,000 cases, although most of them are not reported because in far north Queensland, it's very well known, but people tend to be a little bit blasé about it. Mm-hmm. And in other parts of Australia, it's probably misdiagnosed because it's not so very well known. In, uh, in Australia, it's more of a, a nuisance, although it can be life-threatening. There have been deaths okay. through it. Um, and there have also been people who've been off work for years. To conduct her research into the ciguatera fish poison in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales, Dr Murray tapped into the local knowledge of recreational fishermen and fishing clubs. 
We just basically, we put a call out to the recreational fishing community because we knew that we needed help with this kind of research. We're just a few scientists. We're not going to be able to get out there with our fishing lines and catch the number of Spanish mackerel that were needed to do a study like this. It just was never going to happen. So luckily for us, we got a lot of help from the New South Wales Recreational Fishing Community, and that was fishing clubs um, from Coffs Harbour to Byron Bay, all up the coast, who got involved. We sent them sample packs and instructions on how to take samples from their Spanish mackerel. Mm -hmm. We asked them to weigh and measure the Spanish mackerel that they caught and tell us where they caught it and when they caught it, and send us a sample of the tissue that they would put in a, a container for us in the freezer, the end of the fishing season, we collected all the samples and tested them all. And this is how we were able to see if there was any kind of relationship between the size of the fish. So the larger Spanish mackerels, are they more toxic than the smaller Spanish mackerels, which yeah. was our question. Yeah. What was the result? And the result was no. It was a big surprise because um, the Sydney fish markets and a number of other places had been uh, using the size of the fish as a kind of a management tool for this disease. So they had been saying to people and communities, be really careful of Spanish mackerel larger than 10 kilograms because we suspect they're more likely to contain ciguatoxins. And in our study we found that there was no discernible relationship with size. So what that means is even the fish less than 10 kilos could also be toxic. Dr Murray's research also looks at how Pacific Island nations have responded to climate change. She researched things like their diet and health issues like obesity, fishing practices and techniques, and what management strategy nations have put in place to try and keep the devastating effects of climate change at bay. We're just starting to do a bit of research with the Cook Islands, because the Cook Islands has been a place that's been particularly hard hit by ciguatera fish poisoning. It's ended up also having social and economic impacts on the island because a lot, most of the people to some extent lived on subsistence fishing, even if they had a day job and you know, on the weekends they'd go out fishing and that would just be part of their normal diet. And that worked out really well for the islanders because fish is very healthy food and it was exercise for them and all of those things. So since this increase in ciguatera fish poisoning, they haven't been able to go fishing as often. And so that's resulted in more obesity and a worse, worsening diet because they've replaced the healthy local fish in their diet with imported meat and high sugar and, and, and fast foods. So it's really had a strong impact on that community, the bans that they've had to have due to, to fish poisoning. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation, where we bring you the stories, ideas and insights from the world of academic research. Special thanks today to The Conversation's Justin Bergman and to our editorial intern, Dilpreet Kaur, who edited that segment on the history of food adulteration, and to Jordan Fermanis, also an editorial intern, who put together the package on ciguatera fish poisoning. We'd like to thank Dr Andrew Ventimiglia from the University of Queensland and Dr Shauna Murray from UTS for making the time to speak to us. 
Our theme beats are from Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and we've used music in this podcast from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of music credits on our website at theconversation.com. And while you're there, go and check out our other podcasts, like Media Files, presented by leading journalism academics Andrew Dodd, Matthew Rickardson and Andrea Carson. It's all about the media and how it's doing its job and whether it's getting it right. Media Files and Trust Me, I'm an Expert are both out every month. Find us and subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts. And rate and review us while you're there. Chat to you next month.